One of the life lessons I've learned from interviewing all sorts of people for more than 40 years is that there is no straight path to success. I've heard and admired so many great stories about unorthodox journeys to success, none more so than the journey of Morris Robinson. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, the early years, the doubt, the obstacles overcome, and the passion to push forward. Morris Robinson was an All-America offensive lineman at the Citadel, whose dream of playing in the NFL went unrealized. He went into the corporate world, successful, but unhappy. And then, an audition for a choral society in Washington, D.C., opened the door to the rest of his life. His passion for singing, an amazing voice, and hard work has taken him all around the world, singing opera on many of the world's most famous stages. I spoke to him as he was performing this summer in Wagner's The Flying Dutchman in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, that's as good a place as any to start. Sure. Singing in altitude uh, for the non-professional uh, that never even crossed my mind. I mean, it crossed my mind in terms of athletes, you know, playing yeah. in Denver, that type of thing. But for singers, it's different as well. Oh, God, yeah. You have to breathe. And, uh, you know, it's uh, you when you try to sustain long phrases on one breath, the breath is a lot shorter here because you don't have enough oxygen in your body. So your body's natural reaction is to do that. And sometimes it does that when you're just having a conversation. You could be talking and all of a sudden... You know, your body just does that. So it takes an adjustment period. I was here, like I said, for a few weeks beforehand. I was fine. By the time we got to the shows, I was doing well. But then I've left now for 19 days. So, well, I came back a little bit earlier. So maybe 14 days or whatever. But, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how it goes the next few days. But, yeah, I'm trying to hydrate. I'm going to go out there and walk. I'm going to try to get my breath up, you know, and just see what happens. And when people do opera in in those conditions, is that going in? Is that known? Like, hey, you, you need to get ready for this. Yeah, well, amongst our circles, we let people know that, yeah, you're going, you know you're going to be at altitude, so you, you will dry out early, and there will be a lot less oxygen. So, you know, there's no way to really rush acclimation. Your body just has to get used to it. So hopefully mine will get reused to it quickly. Not something you have to deal with at La Scala, I take it? No. <laughs> yeah, I think they're at sea level. I mean, most of the opera houses are within a respectable range of sea level. So I'll tell you what, when I went to Charleston this weekend, because I flew to, there directly from here, I uh, I felt like I could run a marathon. I was helping my son move boxes upstairs. And I was like, yeah, let's go, man. Come on, let's do more. And he was like, Dad. Like, I had coffee. <laughs> so, lot, you know, there was a lot more going in then. So, yeah. So when I first spoke to you back in 2004, that notion of your path to the opera and the what others considered an unorthodox path, namely football to the corporate world to music and then opera, uh, was getting a lot of attention. And you talked really honestly about how people gave you a hard time because that was an unorthodox path. Do you get a sense now almost, it's hard to believe, 20 years later, that uh, that thought about going to the opera th using an unorthodox path, is that more accepted now, do you think? The path? Well, just the notion path. that people, pe both, that all the, yeah. uh, that others can can do this, and there might be other people who yeah. didn't take the traditional route. 
Well, there's there's certainly not very many people that didn't take a traditional path, but I feel though I feel as though after 20 years, and I started in 1999, so I'm really at 24 years in the business. I feel as though I've proven that it's not a fluke of nature. You know, it's, it's not something. It, it certainly is a one-off, but it's certainly you know the work has been put in to legitimize my existence. However, I still to this very day still carry a chip on my shoulder a chip on my shoulder with a certain amount of, I got to prove it to everyone that I'm still able to do this. Or I can, you know, every time a new challenge is presented to me, I take that challenge. Like there's a group of people out there waiting on me not to be able to accomplish this goal. So, you know, I carry it with me as motivation. I carry it with me as, as something to keep me going, you know, so it, it's there. But I think that the business is recognized that Morris is legit and he's been around for 20, 20 plus years at a houses and he's doing his thing. Uh, what I have found is that, uh, the business has opened its mind up to more diversity when it comes to casting and that type of thing. Right. And uh, that's, that's refreshing to see. So. Now you talked about taking your son to the Citadel, your alma mater. Yeah. Uh, what is that like? And, and uh, I take it that you did not think that that was going to be happening. I never thought he'd go to Citadel. In fact, he's grown up around Citadel. You know, when we first talked, there was no son. So uh, right. all this has happened since, but yeah, I never thought he'd go there. He, has, has grown up going there for homecomings and games and that type of thing. He's always said, I'll never go here. I'll never go here. And uh, he got recruited by the, the new football coach that came in, and uh, they convinced him to give it a shot. And he says, yeah, I'm going to Citadel. And I was like, okay. So right as we speak, he's probably out there in 100-degree weather, marching on the field and learning how to shine shoes and do rifle manual and uh, and that type of thing. So, yeah, he's there. I, I'm excited about it. I'm still kind of holding back to see how it goes because this is this is the toughest part of the journey if he mm -hmm. makes it through this and i think he'll be all set so and we can't talk to him like they confiscated their phones and electronics the first day so i won't be able to talk to him for two weeks so we'll see how it goes <laughs> are there still lessons from that part of your life specifically going to the citadel and also playing football there are there still lessons that pertain to the work that you're doing today I call those I call those lessons, and they do exist. I call them transferable skills. Uh, you know, to do what I do at a professional level, you need discipline. You need a regimented type of schedule. You need uh, personal accountability uh, to walk out in front of the crowds that I do. You need intestinal fortitude. Uh, you know, uh, a sense of teamwork, a sense of ownership, uh, flexibility, the ability to to make a move and to to adjust on the fly. All of those things I've been training for my whole life, not knowing that they were gonna be applicable in this discipline, but yes, everything I've done, everything I did there behind the in the barracks, behind the gates, everything I did on the football field has contributed greatly to what I do now. I recently did an interview with the, the Broadway actor, Jordan Donica, who uh, last show is uh, Camelot, he's terrific. And also grew up with a love of sports and a love of music. And he talked about playing football in high school and, and getting the team to actually try out for the high school musical, which <laughs> uh, when I was playing sports in high school, uh, I could have asked them to, do you want to go on like, you know, uh, you go to the moon. That would be uh, an easier ask than asking <laughs> them to be part of the high school musical. That for those of us who did grow up with both a love of sports, playing it, a love of sports, and a love of music, how did that juggling act go for you when you were younger? Well, well you know, in the adolescent ages, in the adolescent ages, 
you know, a little bit less maturity is, is present. So there's jeering and there's laughter, that type of thing. But if you notice, just about every professional athlete has started a music career on the side, you know. <laughs> Kobe has a rap album. Shaq has a rap album. You know, Allen Iverson has a rap album. I think everyone has respect for that, which they can't do. And I think most athletes love music because, you know, that's the shortcut to a social life, you know, for whatever, whatever it may be for you. So uh, there's always that, that uh, to me, I think there's, there's always a, a synergy and a connection. Uh, you know, a lot of the musicians now have athletes as friends. You know, they want to be part of that circle. You know, if you're really talented in music, you probably weren't the man on the football field or the basketball court or baseball. So, you know, you see those guys partner with each other all the time just to establish bonds and friendships. I think it's just being, being one of the cool kids. And I think so they aren't that far apart. And from a, from a, a tangible aspect, the discipline again, the personal sacrifice, mm-hmm. you know, when others are doing one thing, you have to concentrate on doing something else that's benefiting your craft, whether it's working out to be an athlete or practicing scales to be a singer. So those things are very congruent. Uh, you grew up around a lot of music in the church. And uh, I remember you told me back in 2004, like uh, they, there was like a part of you or the way that you sang that you, they, they wouldn't let you sing. Uh, there was the <laughs> elements where they wouldn't let you sing uh, with, I guess, your siblings, that type of thing. Yeah, my sisters were really tough on me because I always had this weird sounding voice, as they call it. So my voice did not fit into the... Uh, the style in which they were doing. I, I naturally always sing with a lot of resonance and a lot of support. So that's not conducive to the sound that we're used to hearing in gospel music. So, yeah, they gave me a hard time. It wasn't until recently they let me start singing with him. And not in public. <laughs> not in public. But uh, I do have a home recording of us singing one of their duets together that I turned into a trio. And it was remarkably good. So I at least got some street cred from them. <laughs> you said not until recently. What? Yeah, what is I mean, the guy like the last five years? Yeah, it's been like you know they we they were at my house for something, and they started singing. I joined in, and someone recorded the video, and I actually worked. It actually worked. I was able to blend with them. They were like, "Okay, I guess you're all right." You know. So, what does the guy got to do to to sing with his siblings? Uh, which which okay. opera house do you have to play? You know, I think that uh, what does it say that uh, you're least appreciated at home? You know, so there goes that adage. I think that I'm least appreciated amongst the people that really know me because. What I do is so far into them. I mean, they're proud of me, but it's like, yeah, who wants to hear that? So, <laughs> And as you're growing up, uh, is there some notion of, and then getting to say, say to high school, is there some notion of what the path ahead is going to look like? Or was it all like I have these different uh, loves or have these different things that I enjoy and we're not quite sure where it's going to turn out? It was more B than A. I had no idea. My teachers were trying to encourage me to audition for conservatories, which I did. But I didn't want to go and, I mean, you know, coming from where I've come from, and I think we may have talked about this before, there is no clear path in what to do with a voice that weans itself towards classical, a classical sound. There were not that many role models. There were not that many career paths made visible to me uh, such that that was a viable option. What was really viable was going to college and getting an education and going out into the job. Uh, that singing team was just something that I did you know, at, after high school, after singing, you know, <clears throat> with the show choir, after going to tour in Europe and that kind of thing, it became more of a bar trick than anything else, just a side trick. My teammates from college would love for me to sing at their weddings. I sing the Lord's Prayer a lot. Uh, I sing the national anthem at sporting events a lot. But, you know, I didn't see there was no scope for me to even imagine that this was applicable past 
this uh, this what I had had done in high school. So yeah. the European trip. How old were you? Where did you go? Uh, yeah, you still so, in high school at that point? Yeah. So I, we talked recently before about my high school being a high school performing arts. I don't think we got into the nuts and bolts, but um, my sophomore year, actually my freshman year, the choir, orchestra, and chorus tour tour, tour choir started a trip to Europe, and they would go to London, no, Brussels, Paris, then London. Do three trips over the spring break period, uh, three cities. So my sophomore year, I was able to go because I was in the chorus and I had solos. My junior year, I did sophomore, junior, and senior year. And those were the things that we did when we toured the Mozart Requiem, toured the, the Haydn's Creation. But I was also forced in my senior year to be in the show choir, which, you know, was basically a, a, a variety show of Broadway tunes. We had a full sound system, a stage, you know, costumes, makeup lights. It was a full production, you know, and we, we did things like, well, we toured with that. But we also did things like IBM convention, 3M convention, Xerox is there. You know, we were the featured entertainment for a lot of conferences and things like that. So we flew all over the country. But yeah, every year I went to Europe and did, the, did that tour. And then after my senior year in high school, before I went to the Citadel, <clears throat> I ended up going to Japan with the same group. Uh, the, the, my course director got some postgraduates to come and we toured Japan and we went, I think we were in Japan for like 10 days. So yeah, I had a pretty exciting high school career when it comes to performing in front of folks. So, yeah. And there's no spark during that of, boy, this would be fun to do, fun to do for a living. No, it's always, you know, as a young guy, you know, I was, I was the football player that happened to be in that, in that group. So you're always trying to differentiate yourself, differentiate yourself from these guys. Like, you know, yeah, we're cool. We're friends and all, but, I'm the tough guy. So, right. you know, it was always that. And uh, and I was also very focused because I wanted to be a good athlete and I wanted to play football and I wanted that experience. So, yeah, I, if there was a path or if there was any beacon of light revealing itself for that time frame, I was not aware of it. You know, I was <laughs> focused on, yeah, I'm going to see this, but then I'm going to do some push-ups by the poolside so I can be ready to go when I get to school. So, yeah. And was the decision uh, to go to the Citadel, was that a – popular one at home or was there some question from your family of like, hey do you really want to do this no my dad was like heck yeah go you know it's a great school once they got once i took them so i went on a recruiting trip and i was offered a full scholarship so i told my parents hey got a full ride here i'm thinking about going it's a little different type of place so we should all go as a family so we went as a family and my dad was like heck yeah this is where you should go you know he was really excited about it my mom right up until the point where she dropped me off at the barracks literally pulled me aside and said, you know, you don't have to go here. We can pay for you to go to the University of Georgia. We just fine. I'll talk to your dad. Don't worry about it. So she was very apprehensive about it. You know, she just thought her baby was not ready for that level of level pressure. So, yeah. How about you? Did you have moments where you wondered whether you were ready for that level of pressure? No. Um, you know, I, I think I was born with whatever it is that makes me say, this guy's not better than me. There's, there's nothing he can do that I can't do, so why am I able to do it? If you can do it, I know I can do it. If you can do it, I know I can do it better. Mm-hmm. I've been that way my whole life, so uh, there was no way I could show up there and see guys that were able to go through that program and now instruct me and think that I was not able to go through it and in turn become what they are. So, no, not, not one moment. There were moments of misery, like, dang, 
why did I do this? I could get Clinton, you know, with a T-shirt on, flip-flops. But I had my eye on the prize. I knew that the hard work put into this, the sacrifice was going to pay off at some point in time. And, and I was not disappointed. It, it paid off. So. And is there a way of comparing uh, playing in front of 80,000 people at the University of South Carolina to appearing at in front of SRO crowds in the great opera houses of the world? Well, there's an intimidation factor with both. Factor with both. Uh, you know, when you walk out on the stage, like, you know, as prestigious as this one, and you're singing a German role, and your conductor's from Germany, your assistant conductor's from Germany, and your lead singer lives in Germany, and the German <laughs> coach from the Met is there, and the Wagner Society is there, who all, I'm presumed, speak German. Yeah, there's an intimidation factor there, but, you know, when you're prepared and you're confident in your level of preparation, then it just takes courage to walk out and do it. And I've had to exemplify that courage from high school, you know, standing in front of crowds there all the way through college, some big, some small. But I've always had to walk out in front of crowds and prove myself. So it doesn't make it mundane or monotonous. It's always an adventure. It's always a sacrifice. But I'm capable of of, of, uh, of rising to the occasion for the most part. So, yeah, a lot of similarities, though. Courage being the most important, you know. I remember you told me, almost 20 years ago about when it became clear to you that you were not going to be going on to the NFL and, and, and the voice that was said to you either actually or metaphorically was sorry, now go be normal. Like you've had this dream, you've had, you've, you've been in this uh, role for four years in college and now the, the dream is not realized. All right, go, go have a nice life. Uh, yeah. Most of us will never be in that, certainly not in the athletic world, will not be in that kind of experience. What's, what's that like, and how do you get through a moment like that? You know, uh, it's, it's, it's humbling, but you know, I always tell people that it's football. You don't leave football, football leaves you. And part of the humbling experience is, and the, you know, quite honestly, the, uh, the uh, therapeutic aspect of it all is surrounding yourselves by people that have gone through the same thing. So literally everybody that I talked to on a daily basis, my friends that aren't opera singers, were all ex-athletes. Whether I played with them, against them, or they played at other places, we all have that commonality knowing that there was a point in life where we had to stop that which we were and become that which we are. And that is a, it's a tough experience, but it's, it certainly makes it a little bit more bearable when you have somebody you can bounce it off of who's lived that life because they still see you in that same way. I still see my friends in that same way. I knew what they were capable of then. It just didn't work out at the next level, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they were fully capable of doing this magnificent thing that only a small percentage of society gets to do for at a high level. So yeah, I think that helps, but also knowing that fueled me because I always felt that there was something inside me different that did not want to adhere to the, the realms of normalcy if you will, and if I ever had an opportunity to do something else special and be great at it, I was going to make sure that I put everything I could into it to, to see it come into fruition. So I wouldn't have to think about the workouts that I missed or the extra laps I didn't do or the extra sets I didn't do. There were going to be no extra sets I didn't do. There were going to be no extra laps I didn't take. There were no, going to be no missed workout sessions. And that's how I look at my life now. That's why I work nonstop all the time to make sure that I'm bringing this the highest level of what I do to, into fruition because 
I'm making sure I put in the time and the work. So. In between, there are years where you're working in the corporate world. Uh, is there a sense at that point after after the Citadel? Is there a sense at that point of okay, this is it, and I'm fulfilled, or is there something gnawing at you like there's something else out there? I was never fulfilled in corporate America. I was never fulfilled. In fact, I remember being at 3M. I was a young. Uh, I just started marketing, and I was taking one of the interns out on a date. And I think the VP gave me like the box seats to the 3M box. And I walked in with her and I think I had popcorn and a hot dog and, you know, we're doing the thing. And I walk in there and I saw the guys in the field and I realized that's the first time I've ever been to a football game as a spectator. And I wasn't actually a football player. And I started crying. And uh, she was like, I'm sure she was like, this guy's really weird, but <laughs> it, it just bothered me, you know? And so once you've achieved a certain level of, of, being in the spotlight, you know, it becomes part of who you are, I think. And uh, at least for me. And so, no, selling, being the number one sales rep, selling 400,000 discs to the International Monetary Fund was never the same for me. It was never, it never fulfilled me as a person. It never fulfilled my spirit. So, no, I never got complacent. And so what leads to that first suggestion? Hey, why don't you go... Oh, I did. Well, the first, the first thing was Denise, who you met in New York. My wife, she, uh, she had seen me go back and forth with going to law school and singing the national anthem and singing all these, you know, and trying to decide what I was going to do next with my life because I wasn't fulfilled, fulfilled what I was doing. And so she set up an audition with me for the Choral Arts Society to be in the chorus with Norman Scribner. And I didn't find out about it until like 10 o'clock that morning, she told me. And the audition was like 1 o'clock. So I had to go buy a score of the Mozart Requiem because that's the only thing I knew. And I took that to them and I said, hey, I want to see the tuba mirror from the Mozart Requiem, which is not an audition piece, but they let me do it anyway. And I started singing and they all went. And so <laughs> she's in the back of the room laughing, thinking it's like, you know, and they were thinking a prank was being pulled on them. But it was at that moment that I realized that if these, if this level of person thinks that what I have to do is special, then maybe I should pursue this. So where, where was this? This is Washington, D.C., right. the Coral Arts Society of Washington. And, and how old are you at this point? 27, 26, 27. And yeah. the light, kind of a light bulb goes off as you see their reaction? <clears throat> light bulb went off as I saw the reaction. He told me that you don't belong in this course. You should be out front singing, but you have no training and but you need to be singing, so you're going to be on my chorus. And then he immediately started taking me around, doing special events for the Congressional Black Caucus and singing for this person. And he introduced me to uh, Todd Duncan, who gave me my first voice lesson, who's the original Porgy and Porgy and Bess, and, you know, just those types of things. And then I ended up leaving that company and having to move to New England. And I, I the New England Conservatory was there, and uh, we were riding around looking for housing or something, and she says, you should go in there and see what they got going on while you're at it. And I didn't want to, but I went in, grabbed an application for a weekend program that they had, and uh, I read up on it, and I set up an audition. I went and sang the national anthem for them. And that's when the ball really started rolling because they put me in their opera studio, and that's where Sharon Daniels heard me from Boston University, and the rest is history. So I, I was working that job for two years, but Sharon convinced me to leave and come to her school. She gave me full scholarship, and I never looked back. I've never really worked a real job since then. 
I've always loved what you said about the first opera you went to, you were actually in. Yeah. I either Boston Lyric Opera, 1999. I think it was October of 99. It's my first opera ever going to. And I was standing on stage singing the King and I either. So, <laughs> yeah. A role that I still see today. I've seen both roles sometimes. But, yeah, it's uh, that was my introduction to opera. When I was growing up, my father uh, would say to me, uh, you're going to learn a lot in school, in the textbooks, and then there are people who are not going to be in the textbooks who are part of American history and their heroes and their mm -hmm. uh, people you should know about. And at the top of his list was Paul Robeson. Wow. Uh, what, when was the first time you became, do you recall the first time like becoming aware of Robeson's career and, and what he did and listening to his music, that type of thing? Yeah, I, you know, uh, so Todd Duncan, God rest his soul, he gave me a few lessons, and he asked me if I ever heard of Paul Robeson. I said, I heard of him. He says, well, I knew him personally, and he, you guys had a voice. He says, your voices are just like. Hmm. He says, it's not like him when I close my eyes. So it made me interested to go look him up and just do some research. And our names are similar, Robeson Robinson. He's an All-American football player. I was an All-American football player. But he was a lot smarter than me. He was five the capital. He got a lot of from Rutgers, you know, and he was an activist. And, and I think we do share uh, some commonality in that regard. I like to stand up for what's right. I like to speak out against injustices. And uh, fortunately, I'm in a place now, thanks to people like him, where I won't get shipped off to Russia for doing so. But uh, yeah, lots of admiration for him. I wish he was afforded the type of training and opportunities I was afforded because a lot of the things that I'm doing for the first time and roles I've done for the first time would have already been laying as a blueprint because he would have done them. He would have been a, a wonderful Sarastro, a wonderful spot for Chile, a wonderful Dalant. You know, the list goes on and on and on, but he was not allowed that opportunity because of the color of his skin and the history of this country. So, yeah. But can you tell lots me, of admiration. can you tell me about the, the notion of, uh, like avoiding certain roles and avoiding certain songs because you wonder is, is that, is that, is it going to be seen as stereotypical? Uh, old man river, you know, comes to mind. Yeah. So I talked to you in 04, right? I did That's my correct. first old man river showboat in 2012, eight years later, I felt like it was the right time, but yes, I avoided Porgy for years. I did my first Porgy in 2016. That was because Lascala asked me to do it. So, yeah, there was a sense of that. Um, and I think that it still exists. You know, when you when you are seen as one thing, opera administrators, unfortunately, are not imaginative enough to imagine you doing something other than what they've seen you do. And that goes for standard repertoire, too, sometimes. But I certainly, at that point in my life and at that point in the career and of the business in the state that it was, was not willing to risk pigeonholing myself into a particular type of genre early on, because then I would never be able to flourish in other things. So mm -hmm. yeah, that still is a thing. Less of a thing now because the opera business has people in place, myself included, that makes them alert of their biases, that makes them aware of them and tries to coach them through that. So lots of changes taking place nowadays that weren't taking place in 2004. Hmm. Porgy and Bess is, yeah, that's an American icon. And you've sung a lot of uh, huge roles. What's it like to prepare for something like that, for Porgy and Bess? 
I prepared for Porgy intensely. I prepared for Porgy as well as I would prepare for anything in Verdi or Mozart or Puccini or Wagner. I prepared just as much because there was a standard set of excellent set before I took on this role of lots of artists that I admire and I'm friends with. And they were some of the first ones that I called. Some of the first people I called were the people I know that have upheld a standard of excellence in this repertoire. And I want to make sure that I was prepared to represent it in the same light. So, yeah, how do you prepare? The exact same way. I called four or five people, asked them if I should, if I should do it. I started with the role, started at the back of the role, learned it from the back to the front, called coaches, called conductors, spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and countless hours with them. I called Dunny Ray Albert, who is, you know, arguably the most decorated porgy of our time because he won the Grammy with Houston Grand. I went to his house while I was singing in Dallas. He lives in Dallas. And I was at his house every week, twice a week. And he taught me every every note of it. I went to John Demain while he was on a gig up in the Adirondacks. I rented a cabin for a week and I spent a week with him teaching me the role. I called uh, all kinds of people. Just, you know, just preparing it like I would prepare anything else. Yeah. Doing your homework. Doing my homework. Yeah. I didn't treat it with any disrespect. I treated it with the utmost respect. Are there moments now, uh, you've been it for, for quite some time, and you're at the top of the game around the world. That's uh, not opinion, that's fact. Uh, <laughs> are you able to step back even while you're preparing for roles? And I understand that you know, you're in the moment, but are you able to step back a little bit and say, well, I, I had this idea, or and others around me had this idea, suggesting you go to this audition in Washington, <laughs> and on the other side of that audition is the, the rest of your life, and you made it work. You know, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't take time to do that. You know, in sports, they tell you you should never read your own press clippings. Right. You should never believe the hype. Now, I read my reviews. I read every article that's published. I read all of it because there's a standard that I want to keep, but I never get caught up in the moment of what I've accomplished and say, wow, I've done that because I'm always focused on the next thing. So yeah, great question, but no, I have not yet sat back and said, dang, I've done this or this started here and look at me now. No, I think when I start doing that, the career is over. So I got to stay focused on the next thing. I won a Grammy last year. I, shot a movie. I got all kinds of stuff going on and I can't really celebrate it in full because I got the next opera. I'm, I'm about to learn a new piece right now. And when I hang up with you, I'm going to start calling people to try to set up my coachings for the next piece. So you got to stay in it. got to stay in the fight. Now, in terms of a new piece, uh, the great writer, Jacqueline Woodson once sent something uh, wonderful to me, which I've never forgotten. And that is she's won a bunch of awards primarily in, in the young adult world of writing but when she writes, when she sits in her apartment in Brooklyn and writes, the awards are behind her. They're not in front yeah. of her yeah. because those awards are not going to write the next book. Now, you've right. been in this for more than two decades at, at, at top level. Um, does that experience play a role knowing that you've done it with other roles? Does it play a role in, in your preparation for the next role or something new? Or is every opera a brand new ballgame, so to speak? The awards behind me, I agree with her, do not prepare me for the next role. But the next role needs to reflect the, role, the awards behind me. 
and that means I got to put the, that same amount of work, dedication, and commitment into preparing for the next project. I can't concentrate on what I've done. It's great. So far, I've had a pretty great record, but my next thing needs to be just as good mm -hmm. or better. So I, I can't sit back and gloat. I have to keep focus on what's next. Yeah, you don't strike me as a gloater. Uh, <laughs> my friends think I am because I'm always sending them things. Like, look at this, look at this. Look at this. But that's for them to like, look at and marvel over because I'm always on the next thing. Yeah. And I hope it's along with uh, the, the roles that you performed, you're still sending them the video of look at that guy. You see that block there? You see that guy? <laughs> see, the, see that hole that I opened for that runner who ran for 60 yards? That's funny. I actually got, I actually just got access to uh, the film from my college days. And the guy sent me like a bunch of DVDs. And I didn't even have a device to play them on. But I was able to record a few plays and put them on uh, social media and send them out to my buddies. I sent them to my son, and I don't even think he watched them. I don't think he wanted to see them. <laughs> you know, and I like that. He, he told me, he told his coaches, he told his mom, he told everybody, I'm not going there for him, I'm going there for me. He wants to establish his own thing, do his own thing, and I'm very happy about that. The fact that yeah. he's taking the bull by the horn and says, you know what? And I told him before I left, I said, you know what? That was my thing, I did my thing. I don't care if you start a down or not, or make three-time All-American. Whatever you do is your thing, and I'm going to be proud of you no matter what. And I want you to know that I really mean that. You don't have to be me. Go be you. So I'm trying to teach him also, wipe out the noise around you and focus on what you're doing, and that's how you win, you know? The noise around you. When you were first starting in the opera world, coming from a football background and then a mm -hmm. corporate background, uh, are there people who are still around, who maybe were part of that noise, who in the subsequent years have come to you and said, hey, name's not important. Hey, you know what? I was wrong. You're terrific. You're doing the work. God bless you. Not once. Wow. Not once. No one's ever said I was wrong. They always say, I always knew. I heard one person last year say, through the grapevine, I can't believe the level of artistry that this guy has reached. Because we always knew he had talent, but the artistry is now, you know, surpassing talent. That was the best compliment I've ever heard. You know, not that she doubted, but, you know, when you come into the game, as I did, I think from an aptitude standpoint, there's only a certain amount that people think you can achieve because you're already 30, you know, you're already, you know, but uh, to hear those types of things, and like while I'm here, you know, uh, the first review came out and said I had impeccable German diction. Like, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Like, how do I have impeccable German diction? You know, I've always not. So it's just a matter of, you know, fine-tuning, always staying focused on trying to get better. And even at this point in the game, I'm still focused on getting better. Morris, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, always. brother. Talking to you, too. God bless you. And, Thank you. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with uh, when I was covering sports in the 90s, uh, covering a lot of football at the Meadowlands, I always found that the most insightful guys to talk to about the game after the game who really kind of understood what was going on, be it good or bad, were, of course, the offensive oh, linemen. <laughs> <laughs> we're the intellectuals on the team. <laughs> Morris Robinson. His schedule this fall includes performing with the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center in the world premiere of the opera Grounded, composed by the Tony Award-winning composer Janine Tesori.
Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.